we are finishing up the message series entitled Relationship Goals. Tonight we're talking about marriage. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I know you're thinking, Pastor Tim, you know, we, I'm a, I'm a, you know, up until now you were talking to me. I'm playing the field. I'm dating. I'm single. But now you're talking about marriage so I can change the channel. No, don't change the channel. I, I want to talk to you before you get married. I, I want to talk to you now. If you're married, I want to talk to you too. But, but understand, it, it, you can avoid so much of a mess if you just understand up front what you're getting into, what you're committing to, what marriage actually is. Let's talk tonight uh, about marriage goals. And for that, again, Genesis chapter 2. We'll take a look at the very first marriage. During uh, all this COVID mess, I haven't had uh, really, uh, we're not actually breaking social distance with my parents. So we've done a whole lot of porch visits since about March. Uh, back on Father's Day Sunday, we were sitting out enjoying the sunshine and we were on my back porch enjoying Sunday lunch. And uh, it was Father's Day, so I just wanted to hear my dad talk, wanted to get my dad telling stories. So I asked my dad um, about his favorite childhood memory, his happiest childhood memory. Um, and my dad said, I really don't have any happy childhood memories. Like my dad said that, I really don't have any happy childhood memories. Um, I've known my dad, you know, my whole life, 55 years. I've never realized that, never heard him say that. And, and part of me, my dad's kind of a gloomy guy anyway, you know, half, half empty all the time. And so I thought, you know, dad, surely, you know, tell me just one happy moment, one, one happy childhood moment. Just, you know, just tell me one. And my dad said, I don't have any happy memories until the day I married your mother. Isn't that amazing? It was, on the one hand, sad to hear my dad say that. Uh, on the other hand, it's beautiful and amazing to understand the beauty of that. That a cycle of abuse and unhappiness can be broken with one generation. You know, I have been blessed but with an amazing, godly a mom and dad, I've, I've, my life has been built upon the foundation of a healthy, happy marriage. Uh, but to understand that, that my dad had never seen that, my dad is the greatest dad in the world, but, but a much better father than he had. My father became a father, became a husband, and, and had never really seen any of that in a healthy way. I say that just for, for all of you who wonder if you could ever have it because you've never seen it because you've never experienced it. Maybe you didn't grow up with a mom and dad who loved each other, and now you wonder if it's even in you to go out and make a commitment and, and, and be able to love someone until you die. You wonder if it could ever happen for you. Well, my father would tell you that it's Jesus that made the difference in his life, and it's Jesus that made the difference in our family. My, my dad would tell you that. Jesus has done it for him. And, and because of Jesus, he's done it for me. And I'm telling you, Jesus would do the same thing for you. This cycle of unhappiness, this cycle of misery, of divorce, of abuse, all of that can be broken. It, it can change with you. you. You can have this. Understand, when it comes to marriage goals... It's really pretty simple. From the Bible, from the biblical perspective, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9 is, I think, the clearest, clearest verse on what God wants for you in marriage. And it's simple. This is what it says. Live happily with the woman you love through all the days of life that God has given you under the sun. There you go. That's your goal. That's it. 
And that is so simple. Live happily with the woman you love through all the days of life that God has given you under the sun. God's goal, one goal for your life, for your marriage is what? Live happily together all your days. That's your goal. That, that's it. And, and the funny thing is it's really not a goal, the way it's worded here. It's more of a what? Command. It's more of a command. Hey, live happily. Live happily with the woman you love. Which tells me one thing. If, if God can command it, then it must somehow, it must somehow be something you could choose. God wouldn't command it if it was outside your volition, if it was outside your capacity, your ability. So the fact that God commands this must mean that there is some measure of choice involved in being happy. And so, marriage go. Live happily with the woman you love through all the days of life that God has given you under the sun. This is what you're aiming for. So, what does that look like? Are, are there secrets? Are there ingredients to a happy marriage? Well, let's just go back to Genesis chapter 2, the very, very first marriage which God himself officiated, and break it down together. Genesis chapter 2, going to be in verse 18. You ready? Now, notice, in the creation story, every time God creates something, he says what? He made it, and then he says, it's good. It's good. All the way up to verse 18. And in verse 18, God gets to the first thing that ain't good. So pay attention from there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. Now, there are some people who say, you know, like God looked down, saw the man alone, and then God starts trying to make Adam, you know, a friend. And so God starts creating like, you know, friends for Adam, like one animal at a time. So God makes, you know, the dog. And Adam gets a dog, you know, and then Adam gets a cat, and Adam gets a duck, and Adam gets, you know, a pot-bellied pig, and Adam gets a giraffe, and Adam gets a, you know, a ring-tailed lemur. I mean, some people read this as if, you know, God, you know, just can't quite get it right, you know, and then God finally gets it right. No, no, stay with me. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out of one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. And at last the man exclaimed, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. They become one flesh, it says. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Awesome. So, everything God made, he says, it's good. It's good. He separates, you know, light from darkness and says, it's good. The first day, it's good. The second day, it's good. And then all of a sudden, verse 18, God looks down on all of his creation, everything that he has made, and he sees something that's not good. And what is it? The man alone. 
the man alone. Now, let me stop. I've already said several times lately that it is not necessarily God's will that every one of us get married. It's just not. The Word of God is clear about that. And some of you, in the sound of my voice, you are single and you are contented. You are happy in your circumstance. You are content with your purity. And I'm telling you, just please the Lord. Just please the Lord. Marriage is not for everybody. But in Genesis chapter 2, we're talking about the institution of marriage. God is creating. He's setting everything in place. And one of the very important things God sets in place is the human family. And it starts out with this man alone. And God says, oh, that's so not good. See, he created Adam in his image, but things went downhill fast because the man was alone. That means after a while, Adam was walking around wearing the same sweatpants and the same pair of Crocs like every day. And it means that like Adam turned the whole Garden of Eden into like a bachelor pad. So there were like movie posters and Spider-Man posters on the wall. There was an amazing expensive, you know, game system. But everything else was just sort of stuff he found. He rolled in one of those big electrical spools for a coffee table. He would drink milk right out of the jug. He would eat SpaghettiOs right out of the can. You understand? The whole place started smelling like feet. It's a man alone. You've seen a man alone, right? I mean, this is what it was. And God looked down and said, whoa, that is not good. It is not good. So what happens? God creates, notice what it says. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. A helper who is just right. We're looking at verse 18. I want you to understand what marriage is, but because this is what's important. What was God's intention? It's not good that one of us would be alone, so God made something special. He made, the New Living Translation says, a helper who is just right for him. Let's play a little Hebrew game here. Remember the Old Testament, the book of Genesis is written in the Hebrew language. And the Hebrew word here is actually a very important two words. It's, it's etzer konegdo, Hebrew. Etzer konegdo. And it's really not used that often in the Old Testament. About 20 times after this time. In this particular instance, etzer konegdo refers to the woman that God is making for Adam. And it's usually translated helper, sometimes helpmeet, like in the old King James, a helper, a helpmate, that, that, that sort of thing. And often when we read it, we think in terms of like, you know, daddy's little helper, you know, like somebody that could fetch Adam's stuff. Like, hey, would you bring me another Diet Coke? You know, why, hey, what's for supper? While you're up, you know, would you bring me my house shoes? That sort of helper. But that's not exactly what Edzer Konekdo suggests. Because what you need to know is in every other instance in the scriptures, when this word is used, it refers to God. So this is a very powerful word. Not like, you know, daddy's little helper. No, we're talking about a very strong helper. As in when the scriptures say, I look up into the hills to see where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. My Edzer, you understand? We're talking about the Lord. He is our Edzer Konegdo. He is our helper, our strong helper. So we're not talking about, you know, just, you know, a little lady who's going to help, you know, her husband along. No, no, no. We're talking about a rescuer. 
We're talking about a, a, a woman that God creates and puts inside of her some of God's own strength, God's own beauty, God's own deep heart for relationship. So God creates this Edzer Connecto, this strong helper, this rescuer, and brings her up alongside the man. Do you see that? Do you understand the difference in what Scripture lays out and what most people imagine? This is an incredible match. This is an incredible complementary creation, this man and this woman. And God brings them together and says, for this reason, this explains why a man will leave his father and mother, verse 24, and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. Do you see that? We're talking about marriage and what God intends. God intends that the man and the woman be, be companions for one another. It's not good for one of us to be alone. And God intends that the woman bring this strength into the relationship. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And for that reason, the scripture says a man will leave his father and mother. So marriage begins with a kind of leaving. In other words, the man and the woman, they leave everything they've always known. That They leave their families now, it doesn't mean that you leave, leave like you're never going to talk to your mother again. It just means that everybody else in your life gets pushed down a notch. Your priorities shift. Marriage involves this incredible promise of priority. In other words, the husband and wife are now pledged to put each other first, to love one another first. It's, it's ingredient to marriage, this promise of priority. In other words, when you're married, this is what you're saying to your spouse. You are my priority. And next to Christ, nothing matters as much as our relationship. This is marriage. This is marriage. And it begins with this promise of priority. You leave everybody else. All of your other priorities, your job, everything gets, gets downshifted because now the spouse is your priority. Now, I would say in, in nearly every single case of a troubled marriage, there's probably some issue right here. The couple failed to protect or put in place this promise of priority. Now, sometimes you start out as a priority, but then you know what happens. You have kids. You get a promotion at work, you end up with a house that you can't afford, a car that you can't afford, everybody has to work, everybody needs, you know, uh, you know high, high speed internet and everything else, and before long, you have other priorities and the marriage starts to take a back seat. And when the marriage begins to take a back seat, the marriage begins to suffer. Understand, from the very beginning, what God intends is that the husband and the wife, they love each other first, next to Christ. You are one another's priority. This is your goal for marriage. You get that? Do you understand that? And if you are married, if it's broken, this is part of how you're going to fix it. Right here. You are my priority. Nothing matters. Next to Christ, nothing matters more than you. My job is not important than you. Our children are not important than you. Understand? You are my priority. Next to Christ, nothing matters as much as our relationship. This is what God intends. There's just no way around it. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. One flesh. Marriage is amazing. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and it's hard. It really is. 
had some friends who, uh, I don't, do y'all still do this? Do kids still do this? Um, used to be a tradition where at your wedding you would not eat your cake top. You know, like, you know, the wedding cake, you know, is like this tall. And, and the top is little, you know, with the little bride and groom or flowers or, you know, whatever you put on top of a cake these days. And in the old days, you would save the cake top and you would eat it when, old people? Yeah, on your first anniversary. Is that still a thing, young people? Is that still a thing? Y'all did it? Yeah, I said young people and you jumped right in there, didn't you? Yeah, I, I, I know. Um, Melissa, is that still a thing? Yeah, it's still a thing, y'all. It's, what do you know? It's still a thing. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm about to spoil it for you. So uh, I had some friends who, who did that. They saved their cake topper. And, and like they put it in the freezer because that's what you do. You, you box it up and you put it in the freezer because you're going to eat it on your first anniversary. And that sound good? And that sound like a really good idea? So my friends, they moved in the first year of marriage, they moved three times. But every time it's like, oh, you know, get the cake, save the cake, don't let it thaw out. You know, I mean, like they made sacrifices to make sure that cake was taken care of. It was a prized possession. They wanted to eat it on their first anniversary. First anniversary rolls around. I mean, they pull it out of the freezer, they open the box, they take the plastic wrap off, they get plates, they get out a knife, they put the knife in, and it goes, it was styrofoam, y'all. It's styrofoam, like their cake top was fake. It was styrofoam. Now, our cake top was actual cake. But one year later, it was the worst cake I ever put in my mouth. I mean, it's just horrible. I mean, it's just like, whose idea was this? I mean, and you're not going to eat it. It's horrible. I guess rule number one in marriage is you really can't live on last year's cake. You can't eat last year's cake, and you can't live on last year's love. It's the thing about marriage. As I said last week, marriage really isn't something that starts out hot, and then you set it to the side and it grows cold. But, but I'm telling you, if you don't continue to invest, if you don't continue to protect this promise of priority, a marriage will grow stale. It will grow stale. I see it all the time, and so do you. And you don't want this to happen to you. So how do you keep the magic alive? How do you keep the marriage itself alive? How do you prevent things from going downhill? Okay, two things. If you have listened to me for long, you have heard everything I'm about to say. But when it comes to marriage... I feel like these are the two most important things I have to say. And, and I don't know who else says them. I, I, it doesn't even matter to me. I, I feel like this is something that you really, really need to know. Okay? And, and, and the first thing is this. I've got two things, but the first thing is this. Couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of friendship. They fall out of friendship. As you've heard me say several times, when a couple splits up, I rarely ever hear them say that they don't love each other. They almost always say that they still love each other. What they say is, I, I'll always love her, I love him, but you know, I, we don't have anything in common anymore. I don't even know who she is anymore. I, I, I love her, but I just, um, I, don't li I don't like living with her. It, it, I can't live with her. It, it's that sort of thing. Do you understand? They don't fall out of love. 
they fall out of friendship. In the Song of Solomon, which we read last week together, in the Song of Solomon, it's this beautiful you know, book of poetry between two lovers, the man and the woman, and it's just beautiful. And the refrain throughout that entire book of poems is, my lover, my friend, my lover, my friend, come to me, my lover, my friend, rise up, my lover, my friend. Do you understand? It's beautiful when you can be lovers, but for long-term happiness, it's more important that you can be friends. I would say you married each other in the first place because there was a friendship. You were best friends. You could talk all night long about nothing at all. And you just enjoyed being together. I mean, you just enjoyed doing anything together. And you had a lot of fun together. And there was just this amazing friendship. And everything that brought you together had to do with this friendship. Will you listen to me? That friendship is the soul of your marriage. It is the very soul of your marriage. I'm telling you, sex is amazing, but sex isn't necessarily going to keep you together for your whole life. But friendship will. The friendship is where the love lives. The friendship is where the marriage lives. This is the soul of your marriage. And this is why it's so very important always, always to continue to work on the friendship. Continue to find things to do together. Find ways to enjoy being together. You have to continue to talk. And right now, all the women in the house are saying, well, uh, my man won't talk. He won't talk to me. He never talks to me. I try to talk to him, and I can't get a grunt out of him. He just eats supper and falls asleep on the couch. That man won't talk. Well, he probably, it seems to you that he won't talk, you know. Uh, can I be really, really honest? Um, you know, Lord, there's this idea that like, that like men are always ready for sex and women aren't. You know, so a woman has to like, yeah, you have to find a way to, you know, rev her up. You know, like get your wife ready, you know, to, to be together. What I, the reason I use that example is because that's how he is with talking. You got to find a way to rev him up. He's just not ready to talk because you're ready to talk. He's not just going to, you know, light up like a Christmas tree when you ask him how his day at work was. He needs the same kind of gentle preparation, the same kind of tender, you know, bringing him along. I'm telling you, you have some things in common here, but you have to learn how to invest in this friendship. You have to learn how to get this man to talk. You have to learn how to continue to show this woman a, a good time. I mean, she fell in love with you, sir, because you were fun. When did you become so unfun? I mean, when in the world did you just become this man who, you know, scratches his behind and falls asleep on the couch with Fritos in his beard? I mean, when did you become this guy? You used to be so much fun. When did you become so unfun? You understand? I'm not making jokes. I'm talking about the friendship, the very soul of your marriage. I'm pretty sure that your spouse would say that he loves you, that she loves you, but would she say that she likes you? Women often have a lot of friends, but the typical man in the United States says that his wife is his best friend. In some cases, our wife is our only friend. And if you take that at face value, then you have to just wonder why in the world so many men treat their best friends so poorly. Couples don't fall out of love, they fall out of friendship. 
This friendship is the soul of your marriage. So listen to me. If you're dating and right now you're just so happy and you imagine, you know, Pastor Tim's talking about couples. We'll never be that couple. We'll never, ever be that couple. Our, our, our love will never grow stale. You know, we'll always be like this. Well, you, you could always be this way. But understand, to, to always have what you have now, you got to always do what you're doing now. And what you're doing now is continuing to build and invest in this beautiful friendship. Don't ever stop doing that. It's the soul of your marriage. Couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of friendship. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? One more thing. Couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of forgiveness. It was Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, who said, A good marriage is made up of two good forgivers. Interesting. Forgiveness. Inevitably, when a couple comes to me and says our marriage is over, they've fallen out of forgiveness. The amazing thing is that marriage is this unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. You know this going in, right? She's not perfect. He's not perfect. Your commitment is unconditional. That's what the marriage vows are. You stand before God and the company of witnesses and you promise unconditional love in unforeseen circumstances. I will... You know, love, honor, and cherish you in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, for better, for worse. Understand, unconditional love in unforeseen circumstances. You can't make any promises about circumstances. You can only make promises about yourself. And what you're promising is unconditional commitment. But that person that you're making this promise to is imperfect. That means he's going to sin. It means she's going to break your heart. She's going to disappoint you. She's going to hurt you. This is just marriage. There's no way around it because there is no marriage. It isn't made up of two imperfect people. We're sinners. We're all sinners. And marriage doesn't change that. And the fact that you love each other doesn't mean that you won't disappoint each other. It doesn't mean that you won't let each other down. I'm telling you that these things accumulate. It's like, it's like the trash in your house. Everybody's house collects trash, right? I mean, all kinds of trash. And we have to take it out to the curb, you know, three times a week. I mean, I, and only two of us live there. But we constantly accumulate trash and we have to take it out. And your marriage is the same way. You begin to accumulate all of these hurts, these disappointments, these moments when she did not seem to be the person that you thought she should be, these moments when you don't feel like he was completely truthful for you. These moments when promises are broken, these moments when all of a sudden, you know, she says what you never thought she'd say. You're in an argument and he he hits low. I mean, these things begin to accumulate and you have to find a way to take them out. You have to find a way to, to put them away. You have to find a way in your marriage to take out the trash. And the only way to do that is, is, is the only way to do that. It's repentance and forgiveness. And you're never, ever going to be in a place where that's not just the way you live. You're always going to be repenting. Why? Because you're always going to be messing up. You're always going to be sinning. You're always going to be disappointing each other. We're imperfect people. 
When's the last time you walked into your house and said to your spouse, I'm sorry, I was wrong? When's the last time you had to apologize? Some of you haven't apologized since Jimmy Carter was president. That doesn't mean that you don't have faults. It simply means you no longer are in this pattern of repentance. And if you don't repent, then who can forgive? Marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. And the only way, the only way forward in every marriage, in your marriage, is a way of forgiveness. So right now, before you make the commitment, right now, before you take that woman to the altar, you better make sure that that you begin to let Jesus create in your heart this capacity to forgive, even as he has forgiven you, as you are forgiven. There's no way around this. We are all called to forgiveness. It's just a way of life. You must forgive because Christ forgives you. And in marriage, it's the only way. Now, the thing about marriage, of course, is you've given your heart to this person. And what that means is you give this woman, you give this man an extraordinary ability to break your heart, to to crush your heart. That means in marriage you can be hurt like no other relationship hurts. It's one thing to be lied to by a stranger. It's another thing to be lied to by the person who promised to, to, to be faithful, who promised to love, honor, and cherish till death. I mean, it's very, very difficult at that point to be lied to by the person that you thought would never, ever look you in the face and tell you a lie. I'm just saying that the wounds in marriage can be deeper than the wounds you'll suffer in any other relationship. And the only way beyond that, the only way that marriage has a future is forgiveness. It's the only way. It's the only way. Any good marriage is made up of two good forgivers. So how do you do it? What's forgiveness look like? Let's just speak practically for a moment. You forgive slowly, a little at a time, without settling everything. I'm, I'm just being straight honest with you. This is real life. It takes time. It really takes time. It's going to be slow. You're going to say, Pastor Tim, I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. You don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know what she did to me. You don't know how many times I've caught her with another man. You have no idea. And I promise you, I have no idea. And I would agree with you, you can't do it. You can't do it. The kind of forgiveness that marriage requires, it's not in you. You can't do it. That's why you need Christ. That's why I said from the beginning that you have to live a Christ-centered life. You have to center your life on Christ. Then you have to join yourself with a spouse who centers their life on Christ so that you can share a life that's centered on Christ. You want Christ all in this thing because it's not in you. I agree. You can't do it. Forgiveness is not a human accomplishment. It always is a miracle. It takes a miracle. I just happen to believe that God works miracles. And I happen to believe that forgiveness is the very miracle that Jesus wants to learn to work in your heart. But it's going to take Christ. It's going to take the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is really the purpose of marriage. It's not really about your happiness. It's about your holiness. 
I mean, this is what your whole life is about. You are being transformed to become more and more like Christ. And if you're a married person, then one of the main primary ways that God's going to sanctify you is, is through this person, through this marriage relationship. And one of the ways you're going to become a world-class forgiver is you probably just married a world-class sinner. So you're going to forgive slowly. It, it, it takes time. It takes a deliberate choice. You have to choose this. I'm going to forgive you. What if she ain't sorry? Forgive her anyway. Slowly. A little at a time. Pastor Tim, I want to forgive, but I, I, I can't forget. I can't, I can't get that picture out of my head. I, I can't get that picture out of my head. I, I know, I know. So a little at a time, you don't have to practice forgetting. And every time you remember, you've got to practice forgetting it again. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard work without settling everything. I mean, you want to forgive, but you've got questions, right? Where were you? How many times? Did you love her? I, I know, I know. There's this incredible des desire to get all your questions answered. You want to unscramble all the eggs, and it, it's just never going to be that way. At, at some point, you, you just realize that it's not going to all get cleaned up. The only way out of this messy moment into the future is this path called forgiveness. You have to choose to, to, to walk it. You can forgive slowly, live at a time without settling everything, and, and you'll have anger left over. I'm just telling you the truth. Um, that leftover anger can still reside in a heart that's, that's resolved to forgive. It's, at first, it's messy like that, but, but, but you're making a choice. And, and despite the anger that remains, you're still making this daily choice, you know, slowly, without settling everything, a little at a time, you're still going to forgive you're going to forgive. And here's the big thing. Um, forgiveness means you surrender the right to bring it up again. Ever. Don't bring it up again. Oh, my goodness. You know, I talked to couples who were just going at it. And they go at it, and when they're going at it, man, they start bringing stuff up. They start bringing up stuff. Uh, I knew a couple that had their very first argument when they were walking down, the, like at their wedding. Like the pastor said, you know, I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Everybody's like, woohoo! They took three steps and got in a fight there. Like they got in a fight. And seven years later, seven years later, they're still bringing it up. Now, by that point, they had seven other years of arguments. And I'm telling you, they brought them all up. I mean, I mean, if there was like an Olympic medal given for bringing up old garbage, this couple, they'd be, you know, gold medalist. They let nothing go ever. Every hurt, every disappointment, every argument, every, I'm telling you, everything, every single thing, they just kept bringing it up. You've got to stop. Just Stop. Stop. This is what you surrender when you choose to forgive. You don't get to keep bringing it up. It's delicious to bring it up. You know, it's just so good. It's just so good because, you know, you can sort of control him with guilt. 
You know, you can remind him what he did to you when it's Christmas time and you're really, really wanting that ring. You know, I mean, you can use that guilt. You can manipulate. It's kind of nice to have control over somebody. And as long as you can keep saying, mm-hmm, you've said that before. I've heard you say that before. But what happened last time you said, I mean, yeah, you can bring that up from now on. But understand, every time you bring it up, you are driving a nail in the coffin of your own marriage. Do you really care? Because forgiveness is the only way. I'm telling you, couples don't fall out of love. They fall out of forgiveness. Every good marriage is made up of two good forgivers. So right now, before you tie the knot, I mean, before you take a guy or girl to the altar, understand, you've got to learn to forgive. Marriage requires it. Somebody once said that there are really only five days in a marriage. Five days. The day you meet, the day you get married, the day you have your children, the day you meet your grandchildren, and the day one of you buries the other and goes home alone. Five days. I've been married 32 years. And uh, the more years have piled up, the more it seems like five days. It goes by so fast. So understand, marriage is uh, just short. A A lifetime is really not long enough when you really love her. That just means it's It's too short to hold a grudge. It's too short to waste time bringing that stuff up. You just don't have anything like that kind of time. Your days are so few that it just seems not to make any sense not to continue to live as friends. Because after all, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the Bible really only gives you one goal. Live happily all the days you got. I promise you, in, in a good marriage, it'll never be enough days. So the Bible says be happy in them. It's a goal. It's also kind of a commandment, <laughs> which means one way or the other, You must be able to choose it, make a choice to be happy together until death do you part. I think according to Scripture, that's your marriage goal. Pray with me. Oh, God. Lord, you know that we're all such imperfect people. All of us, Lord. So rough around the edges. We're not good at love. We're not good at forgiveness. Not very good at friendship even, Lord. We're not very good at making promises and keeping them. We're not very good at not bringing up the old stuff, Lord. We're just not good at any of this. And yet, Lord, and yet, You continue somehow by your own delight to bring us together in in couples so that we can 
somehow in lifetime companionship learn how to become more like you, learn how to love more like you. Lord, that kind of love is not in us. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would learn to draw closer to you, that you might put that kind of love in our hearts because we long for it. We long to be loved like that, to learn to love like that. Lord, it will take us our entire lives. And even then, Lord, it won't be long enough. So, Lord, help us. As much as it's within our ability to choose, Lord, help us just to choose to be happy, to choose to be friends, to choose to forgive, to choose, Lord, no matter what, to center our lives, our marriages, our friendships, all of our relationships upon Christ, in whose name we pray.